0: Welcome along to 98.0 Up, the cricketing podcast. Uh, Joining me today is musician, composer, and author of the excellent Hidden Man book, uh, Mr John Altman. We're here to talk about uh, the sad news of uh, the death that reached us yesterday of Michael Parkinson. Remember, if you like the content, enjoy listening to me and my guests, subscribe, spread the word, and let's get into
1: it. (laughs) John,
0: welcome along. Good to see you again. You're a, a regular supporter of 98 Night Out. Always a pleasure to, to to hear your voice. How are you keeping?
1: Yes, not too bad, thanks. Hidden Man. That's uh, It's been out for about a year now, hasn't it? Yeah, I think February last year, but it's still, unbelievably, it's still selling, <laughs> which is nice. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going around doing appearances and talks and gigs where I talk and gigs where I don't talk and you know I'm off to Estonia soon to talk about the book and amazingly <laughs> so. fantastic um if you
0: if you don't follow John on Facebook I suggest you do because uh his posts are very frequent and always very very interesting should dare I say gobsmacking in in some occasions of uh the uh, the life that he continues to lead. So, um, Hidden Man is uh, what you should be getting. So, you get it on Amazon or wherever else, or even better, go down to a bookshop and uh, pay for it in person. And uh, I'm sure if you got in touch with John, he will provide you uh, with a signed copy as well. Um, now we are here. Um, the very very sad news arrived yesterday. Actually, it took me harder than I expected um, when I saw the headline. It did sort of my world did sort of shudder to a halt. The news of uh, the death of of, of Michael Parkinson. Um, you were quite entwined with Parkey for a great number of years, so I thought it would be good to talk to you about um, your engagements with 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 him. Um, I knew him through the Lord's sort of pretty much since he became president. He was very active um, and and uh, was at a lot of functions. But let's let's wind it back to when you first came across him. How did that
1: happen? Well, I I first. I actually met him in 1977 when I was, believe it or not, musical director for Tally Savalas. A very odd one, yes. Um, Maybe it was a little later than 77. It it was the late 70s anyway. And his show was obviously really already well-established and I knew his writing and his love of cricket and of jazz. But um, I went along to the BBC to conduct Telly Savalis' appearance. He had a single out. If you remember, he had a record, If, that was number one. That's right, yeah. This was the follow-up to that. And I'd done the arrangement for him and uh, the wonderful guy. But that's all, you know, another story that's actually in the book. But um, when I got there, he took me to one side. He said... Look, John, I know I can't sing. You know I can't sing. Why should they know I can't sing? And he pulled out. So I was left with nothing to do. But um, the floor manager or the producer said, well, as long as you're here, we've got Ingrid Bergman on. Can, we, can you conduct as time goes by, which will mean Harry Stoneham can play the piano? I said, yeah, I'd love to. You know, so I'm sitting backstage. And I feel two hands on my shoulder, and it's Ingrid Bergman. <laughs> and she says, "Um, do you mind if I sit with you? It's very lonely in the dressing room." So we sat together, and she said i I explain why I was there, and she said, "Oh, that's terrible." I said, "Well, I'm still doing conducting your appearance." She said, "You know, I get very nervous on chat shows. So when I'm come on for my appearance." I'll give you a little smile. And if you smile back, I'll be confident and I'll be able to talk. I said, Great. I got out there and they they put me on the piano. And I realized the piano was facing the other way. So as she walked in, she wouldn't see me. So um I, I sort of half twisted to try and catch her eye, but I never did. And at the end of the show, we we're in the green room, she came up to me and said, Oh dear, I Said I walked on, I gave you a great big smile, and this strange man just stared at me like I was an idiot. And <laughs> I nearly over. But then I saw your at the piano. So I gave you a smile, but you wouldn't have seen it. And then years later, I got a video of the appearance and um I got a freeze frame of her smiling at my back. So I actually have that photo. <laughs> <laughs> That's... But, um, Parky, yeah. Parky was lovely. And um, I never really got to speak to him then. But then I would see him at cricket matches and at jazz events. And he knew he knew my writing and my playing. And then he put two and two together, you know. And um, I had, I think, two albums of mine were Record of the Week on his radio show. And we always sat together at the test matches. In fact, I was I was sitting with him at Lords when the news of Amy Winehouse's passing came through, and uh, I'd mentored Amy, so we were frantically going through, you know, TV channels, and there was no news yet. It hadn't broken. It had just gone come to me as a text from a friend, you know, a member of a band. And uh, we we never sort of forgot that, but we we hung out a lot. In fact, I don't know if you were there, but there was a lunch in his honour up in the West End, not a tabernacle thing, but uh, they had a quiz, and all the quiz questions were about Parky, And I knew his story, so I won the quiz. <laughs> <I> won the- <laughs> it was amazing. I mean, every single question, I thought... Oh I know that you know yeah. what was oh I know that you know what was his school when he grew up oh yeah I know that as well yeah we we got on like a house on fire and of course he really would you know he'd given it all up to play for England from what I gathered you know I mean I, I never saw him play I would be at matches with him but um contemporaries of his said that he was a very fine batsman so uh, an opening batsman
0: there's a really lovely video, which I dug out and put on my Facebook yesterday, um, which was put together by Nick Holt of The Telegraph. Oh, yeah. uh, it was made, I think, last year or maybe even the year before, but certainly sort of pretty recently, where um, Michael Parkinson gets together back at Barnsley Cricket Club with Dickie Bird and um, Jeffrey Boycott. And uh, it's a very touching video watching the three of them being transformed back to Oh, I bet. The, the the early days. And what was really interesting for me at any rate was to see them with all of their personalities and their celebrity status stripped back and they were all of a sudden, or, or once again, young lads together yeah. at the cricket ground. And um, you're right that uh, even Boycott conceded that Parkinson was the one that was the better player out of the three of them, but he chose yeah. journalism over cricket.
1: That's right. and. Um i mean he never lost his love for the game and he never lost his you know he wasn't a stick in the mud in my day xyz you know like a yeah. lot were i, I had a i probably shouldn't name an ex england player um who i had lunch with who i was desperate to get away from because it was all in my day in my day in my day and i i finally i was like oh for God's sake, let this thing finish. You know, I can't can't take any more of it. But he was <laughs> never, Michael was always, you know, excited by the those and the Roots and the the younger players coming up. You know, it 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 really the the continuation of players was something he was very excited by, and he could, I guess anyone of that sort of age, even I can do it. I can look at a player today and say, do you know what he reminds me of? And then think of a player from when I started watching in the late 50s, and I can sort of relate it back. And he, he could do that, obviously, but a lot further back than I could. fact, he said that, you know, that he regretted he'd never had Don Bradman on the show, you know, which was very interesting. Because so he was asked who he who he'd missed who he'd like to have interviewed and that was the first name that came up oh really
0: yeah frank sinatra was another frank sinatra i think he tried really hard didn't he
1: oh yeah he couldn't couldn't get sinatra at all but of course he had everyone else and they were wonderful
0: going back to those early chat shows i mean i think he he stepped away at exactly the right time because the format and the presentation of the chat show had become very sort of showbizy flashy uh and a huge emphasis on comedy, which... Well,
1: the great thing about him was, because I guess because of his journalism background, he was a listener. He didn't... It wasn't... It was never about him. It, unlike other chat show hosts, where you think, well, they're not letting their peop- the people talk. You know, they're just jumping in, trying to look good the whole time. But he would ask a question and he would sit back. And he wouldn't. um, He might steer a conversation if somebody was pointing it in a certain direction, but he would never impose his own personality onto whoever was on. And the thing he said to me, which I thought was very interesting, and I guess it is a time thing. He basically said, you know, when I've interviewed Orson Welles and James Cagney and and Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire. Why would I want to be interviewing and then he'd name someone from you know, not necessarily from Love Island, but yeah, a contemporary celebrity. He said, I've got no interest in them, and it will show. He said, When I when I have Fred Astaire, I'm hanging on his every word because I'm a fan. I'm not a fan of whoever it might be today. So there's no interplay between my guest, and myself. And that's the important thing, you know, it's not just about me asking questions and them doing answers. And it's certainly not about their publicity department, oh. what I've got to ask, which unfortunately with a lot of, inverted commas, big stars these days, you know, the is told, don't ask about this, don't ask about that, ask about this. And, you know, we all know where that leads to.
0: Yeah, it's. I, I find it very interesting watching some of those earlier shows, particularly the one you mentioned with Orson Welles. Um, yeah, which is which is an incredible um piece of television. But everything about it, the sets are a lot darker, there's complete silence in the studio. You know, you don't hear the audience sort of whooping and hollering on every sentence. Um, and the fact that Orson was just so fascinating, you know, he's got his great big cigar there. Well, I mean, in those days, you could smoke on set, couldn't you? I mean, that's one of the, the things that you, you sure. sort of look at now and think, my God, how weird does that look? And he, and he said, I think, on his uh, one of the sort of documentaries that I watched, that they put him on late because if he had an interesting guest, they would let – it wouldn't be limited to a 45-minute or an hour time slot that if the conversation was flowing, then the cameras would keep going. Uh, and yeah. I thought Dawson well, it's not like three hours, I think, he said – they were, they were, they were, they were talking to each other.
1: I, I, I was lucky to work with Orson Welles. Um, I think I'm even luckier in a funny way that his daughter Beatrice is one of my closest friends. You oh, know, wow. and I, we, we talk all the time. And um, to have that connection with, you know, an absolute legend, really. I, 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 you know, I'm over the moon with that. <laughs>
0: One of things yeah. I noticed as well that um, Laurie Holloway was the musical director for a, a yeah. bulk of the time, but you mentioned Harry Stonham and and the I can yeah. remember the days when it was the Harry Stonham Quartet that used to play the music and do the intros, and the the, the Hammond organ was uh, was, was right. playing the lead. Um,
1: no, Har- Harry Harry was the conductor when I did the show, but there was a full orchestra. It was. Um, so it was obviously a bit later than the early shows, you know, but not late enough for Laurie to have taken over because Laurie and Michael were very, very close and they were neighbours. And oh. an important factor about Michael was his—he was a fanatical jazz fanatic. If that's sorry to say, fanatical fanatic. Yeah. fanatic. <laughs> but he—he um, he was a, a really keen jazz supporter, and I would see him at as many jazz events as I would see him at uh, cricket or at the TV centre. You know, we, we, I've got a lovely photo of, and I can't remember, it's either him giving Sheila Tracy an award or Sheila Tracy giving him an award at um, a big Coda club, which was all the old musicians got together and hung out and had events. And, um, Michael was sort of special guest at one of, uh, virtually all of those, actually. But I, I actually, I really don't I can't, it's very hard to tell from the photo, and it's so long ago, whether he's giving her an award or she's giving him an award. Well, I really, I don't remember, but uh, <laughs> but I would but he, see him. And as you mentioned, the Lord's Taverners, you know, that's, I think you must've been there, that that lunch for him last September. Yeah. Which yeah last time I saw him. And of course, Barry Humphreys did the speech and he's gone as well.
0: Yeah. I've got a picture on my wall from, uh, you can't see it in the shot, but there's uh, me sat in the middle, Parky's on my left, and um, Sir Les Patterson is on my right. It's one of my favorite pictures. And I that bet. was, I think, the first time it was when he'd just become president and it was a lunch in his honor. And, and, and uh, Barry Humphreys said, I mean, they were, they were great mates. And he gave an absolutely rip roaring speech. Oh, he was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so sharp and and so witty. I mean, it was just, but what I, you know, that was the first time I, and, and I went up to, to Michael after sort of the formalities of the lunch and uh, explained to him that I was just starting off this radio programme and I was going to base it on cricket and we were going to play some music and, and he was really interested and he was, you know, sort of I held back from inviting him on because I was just far too nervous and, uh, Thought, I thought, yeah. I can't do
1: that. But well, um, the thing is he, he would have said yes, there's no doubt. You know, he was. I remember actually at that time when Amy's news came through, before the news came through, we hadn't seen each other for a while. And in the meantime, my son, second son, had become producer of the Graham Norton show. So um, I had mentioned it to him that that morning you know and uh, he said oh graham is the best around at the moment and i'd love to be on his show sometime if if somebody asked me i'd go straight on it because i think he's so good and i thought it's amazing you know sort of, <laughs> sort of like, oh well he's a new guy he doesn't know what he's doing you know it was all praise solid praise
0: it was, and he was quite generous with me. We ended up having quite a decent conversation. It was a, it was a weird one of the... I mean, I'm sure you have this all the time, but for me, it was a, a pretty surreal moment. I was stood there at Lord's talking to Michael Parkinson, and then I sort of felt the presence of someone else on my shoulder. It was Piers Morgan. And all of a sudden, the three of us are just having a a very unassuming conversation about cricket and interviewing. And uh, and And I asked Michael about, you know, who is... I said, I mean, clearly... I guess everyone assumes that Muhammad Ali uh, yes. was was the one that stands out for you, but you know, in your in your personal view, what was the one that had the most? You know, and he gave the answer, which he, funny enough, on the documentary I was watching last night, he repeated it on that. But he said about the the interview with uh, Dr. Jacob uh, well, that, Bronowski, yeah, which is an incredible piece of television.
1: No, he always cited that as as an important moment, you know, and. um it's very interesting because uh, the other one he didn't mention in the programme at all, but I know he was a huge fan of, was George Best. Yeah. And, uh, of course, he wrote wrote his autobiography with him or biography or whatever it was. And I remember, funnily enough, one day I saw him at Lords and it was just after we had a Bunbury game which was actually rained off. And so they had a marquee lunch and a band. It was Bill, Bill Wyman, actually, Bill Wyman's rhythm. And I, I played as well, but I was sitting with George Best. And I'd known him when I was in Hot Chocolate because we used to go to his club in Manchester. And we were chatting and he suddenly said, um, I need to go to the loo. Um, could you help me? I thought, what a strange request. And, of course, as he stood up, I realised he couldn't walk across the floor unaided. Oh. And so I was literally carrying him to the bathroom, thinking, this is insane. This is the best sportsman I ever saw in my life. And I am carrying him across the room because he can't walk across the room. And I told my people a few weeks later, you know, when I saw him at the at the Test match, and he was shaking his head and saying, you know, the the best I ever saw and uh, what a tragedy what he's done to himself. So it was it was quite poignant, really. I think that was one of the,
0: the reasons why he was so successful at what he was doing, was that, and he didn't wear it on his sleeve, but he was passionately interested. Now, you've mentioned cricket, jazz. Um, yeah. And on, he was passionately interested in, in in many subjects, wasn't he? And that's why he could talk and engage with people on that level.
1: Oh, totally. And he was he was a fan. You know, he was I, on the program last night. You saw when that moment when he kissed Lauren Bacall.
0: <laughs>
1: he had a similar experience with Ingrid Bergman, who was his, you know, fantasy pinup. Yeah. When he, and he said to me that night when we were on together. I can't believe (laughs) you told me I'd be sitting here with Ingrid Bergman chewing the fat. (laughs) I I said, yeah, but she kissed me. (laughs) um, And he was very, very down to earth. I mean, uh, there was um, a well-known general who wrote books, military books, Sir John Hackett. And he was the third guest on that particular night. And he was incredibly boring. And, you know, professed to have no clue who Telly Savalas was, who then was the the biggest star on television in the world. And Parkey told me, uh, which I didn't know, because I was obviously, I was off in the band. He said, oh, yeah, Hackett was telling one of his... Interminable stories that had no interest or punchline, and he caught Telly Savalas's eye, and Telly Savalas raised his eyebrow and sort of, <laughs> <laughs> and he said, "What a great guy he was," which I thought was really nice. It was a, a mutual moment of, uh, "Oh dear, what are we, what do we, ourselves with?" <laughs>
0: Younger listeners and viewers will be thinking, who's telling us about it? Uh, I mean, again, it harks back to a golden age of Saturday night television on BBC One, uh, Mm of Bruce Forsyth, The Generation Game, Kojak, you know, the two Ronnies, Match of the Day, and then Parkinson, before you went to bed, or if you were coming back from the pub, if you're old enough. Um, It it was a fantastic time, really, wasn't it?
1: It was. and It is incredible, and you're absolutely right. A lot of people would have no idea who Telly Savalas is. And I know when I wrote my book, my editor was saying to me, explain who George Raft is. Explain (laughs) who Crosby is. Explain who Milton Berle is. And you realise there's a generation that won't have any clue who any of these people are, really.
0: Yeah. Well, we were watching that last night. My wife is only five years younger than me, but... um she didn't know who Jimmy Cagney was. She knew James Stewart and she knew Orson Welleser. And it was really interesting. And I was, I sort of looked at her and said, really? Is it? And then it dawns on you that, you know, when, when I was sort of young, but I could remember, Jimmy Cagney was one of the staples of the television impressionists. You know, the look at me, Ma, look at me, Mar. You know, everyone seems to do an impression of Jimmy Cagney in those days. But, you know, that's from a, an era of 1930s gangster cinema, isn't it?
1: Well, I'll tell you what brought it home to me in a big, big way, was um, I was playing saxophone at a charity event and I was sitting with the daughter of the sponsor for dinner. So I went back to my table and she said, uh, oh, I really enjoyed your playing. I said, thank you very much. She said, I see from the program you're involved with Amy Winehouse. And I said, yes, well, actually, I mentored her in the early days. And we were very close. She said, oh, that's interesting. I've never heard her. My parents listened to her a lot. (laughs) And I was like, Amy Winehouse? And you've never heard of her? And then I realized she was four when Frank came out. And she would have been 10 when Amy died. Yeah. How would she have ever listened to Amy Winehouse? You know, there's no there's no reason why why she would know who she was or would listen to her. And it's that quickly that time moves along. And I dare say there are, if they haven't reformed groups of the late 90s, who you, people born this century won't have a clue who they are. I know. Let alone James Cagney. You know, <laughs> yeah, who,
0: yeah. Almost. Yeah. I didn't get
1: started Edward G. Robinson then. Absolutely. Well, Michael, going back to Michael, of course, that was the era of cinema that attracted him, and I think it it's largely because it wasn't there wasn't television, yeah, so if you wanted to see these people, they were huge on the big screen, so they were larger than life so It wasn't a case of you know somebody on a tiny tube that you might see. I don't know, George Reeves is Superman, but you're looking at a nine-inch you. screen. You're looking at Clark Gable, and he's 20 times bigger than you. So when you meet them, when you meet Jimmy Stewart and John Wayne and James Cagney and Lauren... Alan Bebeau, Ladd. Alan Ladd. You're seeing these huge, huge stars. Well, Alan Ladd was only... <laughs> well, that that's it. what I threw him in. yeah. <laughs> Didn't they have
0: to dig trenches for his uh, leading lady and stuff that when they were filming? Same with Mickey
1: Rooney,
0: yeah. <laughs> God, how many people... Were... It's it's an interesting thing, because I always... Um, I mean, you mentioned Superman there, George Reeve. Now, that's the original one. And and it, as Superman has gone down the years, you can you can mention the actors and people just give you blank looks. It's a bit like Doctor Who. I mean, there's a whole generation of people that didn't understand that Doctor Who was around in the 70s and 80s. Um, well, with, fix- with people like Tom Baker and John Pertwee.
1: Yeah, and before that William Hartnell, you yeah, know. It's all... That's right. That's right. Yeah. I'm really pushing it if you can go back to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but what I mean, it's a bit of a tangent, but um when I talk to I've talked to a few schools um over the years. So I'm I'm talking about 14, 15, 16-year-olds. And I suddenly realised they they're not going to know the people I'm talking about at all. No. You know, in hot chocolate. Well, what? Uh, Van Morris. Uh, they might vaguely have heard of Rod Stewart or Dinah Ross or some of those people. And I'm lucky that a lot of them have lasted the course. So Tina Turner, people will know, Dinah Ross, people I work with, Tom Jones, they're all still out there, Rod Stewart. But um, I thought at the end of my talk, it's like I'm almost apologising, saying, "Anybody got any questions?" <laughs> the question I'm expecting is, "What on earth have you been talking about for the last hour?" And instead, the questions I got were, "Did you know the Beatles?" and "What was Jimi Hendrix like?" It's amazing, <laughs> and these are 15-year-old kids. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there are there are pockets of knowledge about and of course the internet has helped because um I've spoken to a lot of parents of youngsters who've said to their kids, Oh, if you like this track, why don't you look at the the small faces or the kinks or here's some film of the Rolling Stones back in the sixties or the Beach Boys and they've gone, Oh, this is great, this is yeah. wonderful.
0: So they've and sampling they've, sampling's done that as well, isn't it? People sampling. don't realise. Yeah, yeah. Now I've got a question before I let you go. Um, I don't suppose you've got a musical instrument to hand, have you? Um, well, there's a piano over there and a saxophone over there. Can you go to the piano and just play us out with Parky's theme tune? Could you do that? I,
1: I'll get the sax out. Hang okay. On. It will be a, a very approximate approximation. That's fine. That's fine. I might get closer on this. I think.
0: Okay, and I'll put you on the spot, and uh, I apologise for that. But um, well, I'll say now, thank you very much, John Altman, for joining me and uh, a wonderful chat reminiscing about Michael Parkinson. Um, and uh, if you would do the honours and uh, and play us out, please. And what a moment for the Wi-Fi to go wonky. <laughs>
1: Fantastic. <laughs>
0: John Elman, um as I said, composer, musician and author of The Hidden Man. Go out and buy it. It's a brilliant read. Absolutely superb. John, many thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you. Pleasure. <laughs>